Thanks for joining me, Jory. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Hi, Jeannie. It's so nice to be with you. I, I'm excited to be back on the podcast. I got to do this once in the early phases of your podcast, and it's cool to see now you've interviewed all these like amazing, famous people around Vermont and beyond, so I'm excited to be back. Um, I am a teacher at Burlington High School currently. Um, Although I have to admit it, my first teaching job was with Jeannie at Green Mountain Union High School where she was the librarian and I was a ninth grade English teacher. Um, but I am an educator, I teach reading and journalism and I do other things at, at the high school. Um, but I always come back to books and I um, really love engaging with teens about young adult literature and also reading them myself. I think you were my second guest on the podcast. That might be right. And I used to be on Green Mountain Book Award. I think when I first got interviewed by you, I was like finishing up my sixth year and I'm no longer on the committee. So I do read more adult books now, but uh, it, it's, that's, that was my connection to you back then was I was your GMBA person. You were, and you were also one of the founding committee for Teen Lit Mob. Teen Lit Mob, one of my favorite events ever. And Peter Langella and I are bringing it back this year. It's going to be virtual, but we are planning to have Teen Lit Mob in um, on May 7th, which is a Friday. And can I give a quick like preview while I have you? You may not decide to use this, but um, <laughs> so we have some amazing, amazing authors coming this year. So if you are a Vermont teen or an educator who wants to bring teens and sign up, signups are coming out soon. And we have... Um, Ebe's a boy coming to talk about pride and new things she's working on. We have Justina Ireland who wrote Dread Nation and now the sequel to Dread Nation. Um, it'll be virtual keynote and endnote, but they are our headliners and we're so excited to have them. And then we have a bunch of Vermont authors as well. So excellent. I cannot wait. I will be signing up early <laughs> and often. No, not often. Um, yeah, when you were on the show, we talked about Renee Watson's Piecing Me Together, still one of my favorite YAs. I love that book so much. Um, and we're going to talk about a different book this time. But before we do that, what are you reading right now, Jory? You always give the best suggestions. Oh, my goodness. Um, well, I just finished. This is, I have a couple of things I'm reading, but I just finished um, a nonfiction for adults um, called Justice for Some by Nora Erekat, who's a Palestinian lawyer. And it was a mind blowing book about Palestinian inter and international law and the ways they've intersected. And it that title Justice for Some and the idea that um, law does not always protect people was really, it's an amazing, amazing account. So something a little different, but um, I feel like um, Allie in this book would be, at, at, when she goes to college, she's going to read Justice for Some. <laughs> um, and I'm also reading, just because of candy, I'm reading um, Robin Lefevre's YA Courting Darkness, which is about, you know, the Lord of Death and his handmaidens, which is really fun. Um, Nothing says fun like the Lord of Death. And yeah, exactly. Saint Mortain and his handmaidens of death. I'm a little embarrassed about that one. Um, it's an older one, but yeah. Um, what are you reading, Jeannie? Uh, let's see. I just finished, speaking of embarrassed, the second book in the Crazy Rich Asian series, which is called China Rich Girlfriend. I have and read those. <laughs> you have, yeah. Uh, I have to admit that um, reading about extreme wealth wasn't as fun this time around mm -hmm. in this current moment. It actually stressed me out a little bit. Um, and uh, I'm just starting Concrete Rose, uh, Angie Thomas's prequel um, to The Hate You Give. I have a stack of books to be read and, I'm, uh, and then I'm starting a graduate course. So I'm reading about education policy. Can I say one other thing I'm reading just because just yeah. because um, I know you just finished this too, but I just finished the audiobook. My audiobook I was listening to was um, uh, Darius, is it Darius the Great deserves better? I can't remember. I think, yeah, sorry. Darius the Great deserves better by um, Adib Coram. And I loved it. And I love Darius so much. And it's such a sweet, yeah, sweet on so many levels. And I just found out that the author, Adib Coram, is coming out with a picture book about Nowruz, the Persian New Year, and about um, celebrating Nowruz. So I'm really excited for that. <laughs> 
Oh, that sounds amazing. I love Darius the Great so much. He's one of my favorite characters in Young Adult Lit. I want to drink tea with him very much. <laughs> um, okay, thank you for all that. So before we start talking about All-American Muslim Girl, I just want us to be really um, honest that neither of us is Muslim, that we both love this book and we both want to talk about it and we want to do that well and gracefully, but we're not Muslim. Yeah, Jeannie, when you asked me to, to talk about this with you, I was like, I loved All-American Muslim Girl. And I was like, I don't think I'm the person you want to talk about it. And he said, well, no, we can both love it and talk about it. So yeah, I um, I part of what was really fun for me about reading this is I've lived in Jordan for a little while in Amman, the capital, and um, also in other places in the Middle East and Lebanon for a little bit in Morocco. And there's lots of references to things in here that were really fun. And I studied Arabic for a while. So there's connections I feel like I have to this book, but I am a Jewish American white human and not a Muslim American. So thanks for putting that out there up front. I am not, not the authority on this character's life, just an appreciator of her life. Yeah. Well, same. I actually have way less experience than you do. I am also a white and of a Protestant background, although definitely not practicing now. And, um, uh, and so we're gonna, we're gonna talk with deep appreciation about this book and listeners, if, if we missed up, we hope you'll let us know because we can learn from that. Yeah. Thanks for saying that, Jeannie. Um, could you introduce us to Ali Abraham, the main character of All American Muslim Girl, Shori? Yeah, so um, Ali Abraham uh, is, a, is a high school student. She lives in Georgia in a sort of Atlanta suburb with her parents, um, Mo Abraham. Um, her dad is a professor and her mom, um, I think her name's Elizabeth and she's a con she converted to Islam when her parents got married. So her mom is not was not raised in the Middle East or with the Middle Eastern culture. Um, and Ali, her real name is actually Alia um, or Alia, if you're saying it in Arabic, Alia. And um, I love at one point she says, our real name wasn't Abraham, it was Ibrahimi. So her real name is Alia Ibrahimi, but she goes by Ali Abraham. And her dad is sort of the ultimate, you know, he believes in the American dream and he's the ultimate assimilationist um, in some ways. Um, and has sort of rejected his Muslim faith. But Ali is a high school student who has this new crush on this guy, Wells. She is, um, she's fun, she's likable. She gets really interested in practicing Islam, but kind of has to do it behind her parents' back in this book. And then there's also this incredibly, you know, plot intrigue that her boyfriend's dad happens to be this commentator on a conservative talk radio station or, or TV station even maybe, Jack Henderson, who is this sort of evil supervillain in a way of um, really anti-Muslim rhetoric on TV. And she, she doesn't realize this about her crush at first, that this is where their family's headed. So there's all this tension about her own kind of Muslim identity and um, and then this boy that she's dating. And I think it's just important to state that, you know, she's this, her family is Circassian. And I was saying, I'm not sure, I think it's Circassian, but it could be Circassian. It's a, um, and they, I, this book gives a lot of background on it because even I think a lot of people in the Arab world don't know this group, but it's a group of sort of Russian, of Russian descent Muslims who now live in present day Syria, mostly in Jordan. Um, and they have red hair. They're known for their red hair and their horses, I think, and among other things. Anyway, um, so her family, her dad is Circassian or Circassian and he, um, yes, yeah, so that is, uh, she, she sort of passes very easily. And I don't think her boyfriend Wells had any idea she's Muslim until she sort of comes out to him. So her, even her school, her classmates, no one, she's very, becomes very popular very quickly. She's new at the school. Yeah. Um, so there's so many things I want to talk about there. And um, uh, one is that the book begins at the very beginning, she's on a plane or she recounts the story of being on the plane with her parents and her father being harassed because of his name. And the way she intercedes and steps up to protect her father from sort of the, um, the Islamophobia he's experiencing. Do you remember that moment? Yeah, totally. And she, she gets this sort of like, I have to stand up for my dad who doesn't really want her to do it, you know? And, and there's a passenger on the plane who overhears him talking on the phone, speaking in Arabic and then reports to the steward or the flight attendant. He's saying Allah a lot, you know, and gets freaked out. And this is, you know, post 9-11, 
world. Um, and yeah, she she sort of stands up for her dad and her dad ultimately is sort of proud of her for it, but um, he was sort of happy to just let it pass. He, he's like, you have to get used to this. This is just what we deal with. And she sort of was unwilling to do that, which is right away you get this, in, this character who's really likable and has that like teenage fire, which you, I always admire, the clear sense of justice that teens are so good at and the rest of us sort of lose over time sometimes. Yeah, well, but there's also this like, I've been thinking about this for other reasons, but there's this cost that she pays for her father's assimilation, right? And so he really like sort of puts Islam behind him, doesn't, isn't religious, doesn't really identify in that way, right? And doesn't want her to have to deal with the burdens of um, Islamophobia, right? And so it pays off for him to, to sort of assimilate in a way I don't know if that's the right phrase. Maybe it's that um, it's easy easier for him to assimilate than to fight. But in turn, she feels this real sense of um, loss because all of her cousins and her grandmother and her family members um, speak Arabic and she can't communicate with her grandmother very well, even though she loves her so much. And she feels the sense of like, how come all these other people know these things that I don't know? I just... I, I, I think you're spot on. I just went back and looked and I think I actually maybe mischaracterized that opening scene a little bit, that it is, she does have a sense of justice and need to stand up for her dad. But I'm realizing when she, when I actually looked back, um, so what, what she's really doing in this opening scene is she's actually, she's using the fact that she can pass to make her dad seem safer. So yeah. she's actually protecting him but in this way that actually sort of pains her, like I think she feels that that sense of justice and indignation was real, but she's feeling this like, I could protect him, but it's gonna mean that I have to sacrifice that part of my identity. Like, I'm just gonna pretend to be a red haired white girl who's not threatening. And I'm gonna use that to protect my dad. And in, I think in doing that, you're right. There's some real sadness in that. I don't look exactly like him and I don't, um, I don't stand out as other, even though he does, even though I feel that way inside. Would you read that a little bit of that section? I know I'm just trying to, um, so she, so she's, um, she's saying I could hear the, the other person's um, inner monologue thinking the daughter and the wife don't look Muslim, but the dad, I, this is Allie, I stand up slowly, no sudden motions. Here, daddy, I say, pulling gently on his arm. Why don't we switch seats? You can sit next to mommy. I never call her mommy. Wordlessly, he stands up and slides into my seat. Please, sir, I say, I call to the man who has accused my father, gesturing my palm up toward his empty seat. After you. He walks down uh, the aisle, frowning and avoiding eye contact. So sorry for the confusion, sir. My grandma is so silly, I say, smiling as I sit next to him. Smiling is key. It confuses them. Anger, indignation, indignation, that's a luxury we don't have. I've been trying to get her to learn English for years. Um, the dad had been on the phone with the grandma. That was why they were speaking in Arabic. She should learn English, but you know how it is, right? Can't teach an old dog new tricks. He blinks, looking back at me. I'm sorry you felt uncomfortable. I'm still using my voice. Thank you so much for being understanding, sir. It's very kind of you. Finally, he nods the flight attendant. It's okay. She scurs, scurries away, relieved. I wanna slap him in the face. I wanna say, how dare you judge my father? What gives you the right? Instead, I draw from years of lessons and hold out my hand smiling. I'm Allie, by the way. Oh, whew. it's all in that passage. What I can clearly see is um, who gets to be comfortable, mm -hmm. who, who deserves comfort and who doesn't. And she has to contort herself and make herself all kinds of uncomfortable for his comfort in order to protect her dad from, from possibly getting pulled off the plane, right? From scrutiny. Right. And I think, you know, it's, it's really common in um, memoirs of any Arab Americans or, you know, that there often is an airport scene and it's often in the beginning. And I think that, you know, it just speaks to the airport after 9-11, the airport really became this kind of intense and scary place where there was this really obvious barrier of like, you don't 
you have to be on guard here more. You know, that the airport really became like the, the center of heightened fear. And I mean, I don't have, I don't know a single person from the Middle East who hasn't had a number of airport horror stories. Um, and that's, so I think the fact that this book opens with that really like, it's both an invitation for those who haven't read these, not this, this kind of about these kinds of characters to realize how scary that moment is. And then also for anyone who has maybe shares this identity, I can't imagine a person not having being like, oh, of course, like, obviously that happened. Um, and this is so crazy. Um, but uh, you know, I remember even I was, you know, when I was a sophomore in at University of Michigan, I started taking Arabic and it was 2004. And I remember I had my Arabic textbook with me go flying home from Michigan to Vermont, like to Albany, New York. And I got pulled for random security. I remember, and I remember being like, and all my friends were like, why would you ever have taken your Arabic textbook out at the airport? And I was like, I don't know. I didn't think about it, right? Like, I'm like a white girl from Vermont. Like, I was like, I was trying to study my homework. And all my friends were like, you're such an idiot. And I got pulls and I had to go to this other security room. And they said, oh, it's just like random screening. And I had to get asked if I took 30 minutes. I almost missed my flight. I mean, it wasn't scary. I had nothing bad happen. I feel really lucky. It was not severe, but I, I think that that airport is a common place where things happen. <laughs> Random airport right. screening. Yes. Well, and it makes me think about, I just saw a report maybe last week that, um, you know, we think that Vermont is above these things. And yet we know that the rate of people getting stopped by police officers on the road is still disproportionate. And so we have our own kind of moments like that. They're just different. It's like being black in a car and getting stopped by police is um, is something that uh, a kind of scrutiny that many of us, that you and I don't have to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if I've ever been stopped by a police officer in Vermont. No, that's not true. I have. And I deserved it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so Allie's doing all this extra work outside of school. She's reading the Quran. She's going to an Islamic study group. Uh, she starts raising money for an Islamic charity with another uh, girl in her school. Um, and what I kept thinking about when I was reading this book was flexible pathways. Like she is doing so much work outside of her schoolwork and so much learning and it's history and it's, you know, she's just doing all of this stuff and I wanted her to get credit for it. It felt credit worthy. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> I, I don't know that I, as in my teacher brain, I'm not sure I need her to get credit, but I'm excited for her because I think she's, she's working really hard to figure out what is important to her. And I think she's just really adding depth and meaning to herself and her life, you know, like in, in all the ways. Um, and I love, I think my favorite part of this book, hands down, is this, um, her discovery of Islam and her sort of teaching herself. And she does it, you know, she does it, she's worried to tell her dad about it because he's so clearly kind of rejected Islam and sort of this need to sort of fit in in Georgia and, and assimilate and be Mo Abraham. And um, he, he finds religion to be really unhelpful and he's very skeptical of it. And so even though her grandma, her teta is very religious and she loves that about her, but her dad really rejected it. And so she does all this stuff. She finds a Muslim study group of girls and she starts going and she doesn't want to tell her dad and she gets a Quran and she doesn't want to tell her dad. And I, I mean, I sort of love that she's, it's this really big deal. Anyway, it's such a beautiful, um, really soulful exploration of trying to find meaning and make sense of, um, of life through religion. And anyway, so I think that's my favorite part of the whole book is just sort of her exploration of religion. And I think, you know, um, Nadine Jolie Courtney does such a, I think does such a great job of explaining a lot of stuff in this book. Like she really, she explains what it means to be Circassian. She explains what Islam is. She explains all these philosophical debates between women and Islam and how do you make sense of the Hadith and the Quran with, as a woman and all of this stuff. And also it's not didactic. You know, this book is still really fun to read. It's enjoyable. It, it's not, 
to me, it wasn't heavy handed at all, even though there's actually a lot of reader education that's happening, I think very intentionally through this book. So I love, she walks that line so brilliantly of like this book stays fun and romantic and page turning and also is like an intro to Islam. <laughs> so um, I wonder are- about that as I read it, Jory, because it felt to me like this book was seeking to educate me. And I was like, am I somebody who doesn't know much about Islam, the target reader for this? And I, what I mean by that is, um, you know, I grew up Protestant. And I think if you grow up Christian in this country, it's very obvious that Christianity is plural that there are lots of different ways to be a Christian. You can be a Catholic, you can be um, uh, evangelical, you can be a Baptist, you can be, right? Like there's a Lutheran. Um, And um, Nadine Jolie Courtney does a really lovely job of painting this plural picture of Islam that we don't often see in the media or that we don't, um, that that, um, challenges the stereotypes of, I think a majority of the American population. I, um, you and I are on the same page, Jeannie, because I had just turned to page 138 and there's a beautiful, again, it is an education, but I'd be curious for, I haven't, I haven't actually talked to any teens about this book, but I'd be curious if this feels kind of hit over the head or not, but I I was, I loved this. I thought it was really interesting and fun. Um, So this is the first time that Ali goes to this, her, her friend Dua from school takes her to this Muslim study group. And there's a Samira, this, the leaders, or sorry, is it, yeah, Samira is the leader, I think. And she's sort of helping them think about it. And all of a sudden, Ali just bursts into tears, right? And there's this great scene after this. And she says, um, oh my God, I don't know why I'm crying. And then she says, sometimes I just don't feel Muslim enough. I blurt out what are you doing? Are you serious? Stop. Right. Those are the thoughts running through her. First impressions are everything. And here I am ruining it. Please, you're Muslim, Shamsa says firmly. You have as much right to be here as anybody else. I don't know why I'm emotional. You're not my therapy session. It's not all about me. I'm sorry. Fatima reaches over and gives my hand a single gentle squeeze. It's so quiet in the room. I can hear the tick tick of the clock on the fireplace mantle. I want to sink into the couch and disappear, but Samira says, okay, y'all, I've seen a phrase making the rounds on Twitter. Islam is not a monolith. She lets it sink in, tick, tick, tick. Islam is not a monolith, she says. It's time we stop feeling guilty about not being Muslim enough or being too Muslim or not being the right kind of Muslim, whatever that means. I can relate, Fatima says, clearing her throat. Her voice is soft, but steady. As a black Muslim, as a convert, I feel like an outsider too, you know? Layla nods at her sympathetically. Ah, oh, co-sign, Shamsa says. I bet most of us do, Ali. You just don't realize it. And then they they kind of move on. But there's this whole, like, she kind of gets this idea that, like, everybody has a backstory. It's not so simple. All of us sometimes feel like imposters. And not just that, but that there's a lot of ways to be Muslim. And she learns from these girls that, you know, some of them... There's this whole very fun section around like what is halal dating, you know, halal being the word for um, an Arabic like around what um, dietary laws. So, you know, it's halal not to eat pork or it's halal not to drink alcohol. Right. So it's sort of Islamic rules around food. But that word can also be used around other taboos. So they talk about halal dating and halal dating is like definitely no sex probably no kissing, maybe no hand-holding, but then each of the girls have like slightly different interpretations of what halal dating means, you know, like, and for Ali, she decides to really navigate for herself, like with Wells, I'm going to hold his hand, we're going to kiss, and that's okay, because it feels really good, and I'm going to, you know, I want to be, I want to be careful and and protect myself and not, but I'm, I still want to do those things, you know, and each of her friends have sort of slightly different interpretations of that. And that's normal and okay. And these group of women really embody that beautifully of all those ways to, to be Muslim. Right. They're all like sort of pursuing their own questions. Can I be gay and Muslim? Uh, Can I be a feminist and Muslim? Right. Right. And like, when am I, um, when am I co-opting the sacred text? And when am I um, sort of living as a liberated Muslim woman. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, And I think too, I'm going to 
can I read another part? Is this please just tell me the page number? Okay, it's going to be 176. Because I think this is the follow up on that, you know, this idea of Islam is not a monolith, right? Just like any religion isn't a monolith. um, But as you were saying, but there's this really incredible dialogue that the friends Dua and Fatima and Shamsa and Samira and Layla and, um, and then Ali have together about um, what is the meaning of Islam? And they have this, Dua has this thing she says where she says, you know, you don't wanna talk about stuff too much in public because everybody is always so down on Islam. You've gotta put on a united front. If we're not perfect, then people jump down our throats. Backward, regressive, that's BS. Total BS, Shamsa says. Other people get space to be complex and question and screw up and grow, but why not Muslims too? Why is it all or nothing? It's like we're either devout or we're a terrorist. There's no in between. It's not fair. Um, and then Samira says, well, all religions really suffer from the same issue. The message is divine, but the interpretation, the practice, and the enforcement is too human. We are too human and we are flawed. You study history, you talk to our parents and grandparents and they'll tell you about the Middle East and how it was a different place before the Iranian revolution, she says. Personally, I don't believe the word of God or an error-free Quran has anything uh, to do with men and their politics. But of course, I don't know. It is the height of arrogance to claim that you know Allah's mystery or um, the mysterious heart or his plan. And they all say, Amin, you know, like, uh, anyway, I just love this. I, I love the way that they talk about it and then they get into talking about well you know is islam fair to women and and they have a really you know they have a really powerful discussion about how much power women really do have in islam and that like a country like saudi arabia maybe isn't a fair ticket for that and um wearing hijab can be a really liberating thing and anyway this and and because their conversation is among friends and they're all trying to figure it out at least maybe this is me as an adult being like a boring adult, but I was really compelled by this conversation. You know, like I, as a 35 year old Jewish woman, I'm still trying to figure out these questions with my Jewish female friends around like, what is, what does it mean to be Jewish? And also to, you know, I'm always thinking about like, how can I be Jewish, but also like fit in in the US and be a woman and like, what, when do I decide to do Jewish things and when do I do things that maybe are just like other cultural things and does that make me still Jewish and is it too Jewish and you know I mean I think that's just like the nature of trying to find your place in religion and they are constantly doing that and I wish I could hang out with them because they're so thoughtful. (laughs) Well so you bring up two things that I can't decide which one I'm going to address first. I'm going to start with this. This morning I watched uh, an outtake from Saturday Night Live Mm-hmm. And it was Dan Levy, who I adore, and a bunch of the other characters um, sort of <laughs> talking about the, um, do you remember the It Gets Better campaign, which was queer adults talking to queer young people about It Gets Better and about how much better life was as adults? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> essentially the whole thing, it cracked me up, was about, yeah, it gets better, except, you know, we still have the same problems. And it's that idea of the model minority. Like, right, if you're a suspect at all, if you're um, sort of marginalized group, you have to be upstanding all the time is what I heard you talking about. Like, so don't disgrace the group, right? And so um, in that way of like, it, you have to put on that united front. And so that, I thought about that. Um, and, that and I think you're right. Like, I think, you know, Ali and all of her friends in this Muslim study group really, they love Islam. They love being Muslim. And so when they're out in public, they feel like they have to be the united front. I mean, that's what they're saying here, right? Is like, and I, I totally, that really resonated with me. And I, you know, of like, they want to just show that Islam is beautiful and good. But when it's just them talking, they have all these questions too, or they're confused about things too, or they're like, is it okay to do this? And, you know, I, I love that. Um, yeah, they're, I love that they've found a space to let down and to get to like actually have that conversation. Like I was thinking about, I mean, I think in Burlington, I, I have a number of Muslim students who I know are practicing and, and get to talk to each other. But um, yeah, like other parts of Vermont, if you were the only Muslim student, you would totally have to, you know, if you were practicing and proud of it, you wouldn't have anyone to get to process the stuff you're actually questioning because you probably might spend all your time 
trying to exert this space of like pride and I like, you know, the united front of one. So I- It's like, you have to be invulnerable in public, but you need places to be vulnerable in question. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and one of the reasons I thought about talking to you in particular about this book is because I know you've had your own journey with Judaism um, and that it's something you, uh, I guess, I don't know if you'd use this word, but reclaimed as an adult. Yeah, there was a lot of ways I felt like I really connected to Allie, even though we have many, many different, you know, there are many things about us that are different, but, you know, my parents aren't the same religion, like hers weren't, you know, my dad was not Jewish, and my mom, my mom's parents, kind of like Allie's dad, my mom's parents had really rejected their Judaism in the name of the American dream. You know, like they wanted to assimilate. They wanted their kids to have all the opportunity. They celebrated Christmas. You know, they stopped speaking Yiddish, all those things. So, you know, when she talks about her dad and his love of, you know, how she and her dad, their favorite thing to do is go look at big, beautiful houses and imagine the the American lives that people have in them. Like I, I had a real, like that reminded me of my grandpa. And so anyway, there was a lot of, I, I, resonated with that. And I think there are probably a lot of Americans who may not be Muslim who might really connect to the way her dad has embraced or, or tried to embrace this country. Um, and then at the same time, she's like, this isn't enough. Like I'm missing this part of myself. I know I have this Circassian roots and I also know that I have these Arab roots and I can't even talk to my grandma and I want to be able to speak to my, you know, my teta and and my cousins. And so, yeah, anyway, I had a, you know, I don't, my family doesn't speak enough. Everybody in my family speaks English at home, but I still, um, there was some, yeah, I think I, I got much more interested in Judaism than either, than either of my parents certainly ever were. And they were maybe a little more, they were less surprised than I was, but, or than her parents were. But I think that, um, that interest in, I always think about I'm trying to remember who wrote about it that I've read. It's adult kind of critical theory, but there's this idea that like we all have an indigenous soul, um, that like all humans, all of us, that there's this, there is still like an indigenousness left in us, even though we may have assimilated and become American. And one of our greatest quests that we can have is to try to hold, to try to rediscover those parts of our soul that may be connected to deep rooted threads and like honor those. And I think about that a lot because I, that feels very true for me and my connection to Judaism, that there's this like very ancient soulful calling. And I really recognized that in Allie when I was reading about her, that she also had this like kind of ancient, I mean, it was her grandma too, but there was this sort of ancient calling and it felt really right to her. Like when she, there's that scene, oh my gosh, I loved this. This was maybe connects to what you're saying, but on page 170, it's the first time she really prays. She does her, she does the full prayers and she does it with her friend and they make voodoo, you know, the washing of their hands and their feet. And I think she's with her friend Shamsa. Um, she's with a bunch of them. Oh, wait, is it? Anyway, she's, and then, and then she says, she says to them afterward, honestly, I didn't expect to like praying so much. When I'm done, my head feels clear and my, my anxiety is just like gone, I say. And I prayed at home a few times and started reading more of the Quran too. I've got a ton of homework, so it's kind of hard to keep up, but I'm doing my best. And um, I don't know, I, I have a real sense of that too, that like, I didn't expect to like praying so much either, that there's this sort of ancient call that I feel. And anyway, I thought, I think, I think she was feeling that too. So I think it's cool to see that in a teen novel. I, I love thinking about God and godliness in a in a teen, young adult lit space. Well, and it asks her, what really ends up happening is she ends up having to make choices again and again about how she wants to show up in school as her authentic self. And so she's this really popular kid. She's dating this popular guy and she doesn't, and I put this in quotes, look, at all Muslim, she passes. And then she starts wearing, does she wear a headscarf or hijab? She wears a headscarf. She wears a hijab one day with her friends to school. She wants to just like try it out. And it, to she's like, whoa. I mean, it's way more attention than she ever wanted or expected. But I think there's also a pride in doing it for her. 
she ultimately decides, I don't think she, she doesn't keep wearing it, but yeah, you're right. She does. She tries it during Ramadan. I think it's one of the first days of Ramadan. She decides to wear the headscarf. Well, and she has all these moments where she's like, do I come out as Muslim or not? So like she gets an app on her phone that tells her when to pray and it, it, um, it, it goes off. And, um, and then she's like, ah, she's very flustered. And so there are all these moments where she's like, do I want to fit in? Do I want to conform? Or do I want to be my authentic self? Mm-hmm. Um, and I've started thinking about that a lot. I've been thinking about this a lot. I've been really um, noticing the way kids are showing up in their different identities. You and I had that experience when we were at Green Mountain and kids started coming out as not just as queer, but as trans. And, um, and I think we were both pretty inspired by the, by the way that kids were showing up as their full selves. Mm-hmm. And I think there's this, um, there's this understanding that might be a false understanding. And it's that um, kids in middle school really want to conform. They really want to look like everybody else. They want to wear the same clothes. They want to be like everybody else. And it, it's got me wondering, as I see kids around the country celebrating their differences, do they or do we teach them that? Mm. Do they learn conformity in school or is that in their developmental nature? I don't know that we can answer that question, but it made me wonder what might we do in schools to create an environment that values diversity and difference and not just in name, but like deeply values our differences. Yeah, that's such a good question, Jeannie. I'm thinking about it as you ask it. And the first thing that comes to my mind is just that I don't know that, I agree with you, I don't know that teens want to conform, but I definitely know that when you're a teenager and even when you're 35 like me, I mean, I think teens want to be liked by their peers for the most part, right? We want we want to have friends, we want to be liked, we want to feel included, we want to feel like we belong. Belonging and, is so crucial, yes. And so you want to be part of something, right? And so I think conformity is not the only way to belong, but it's maybe the easiest route to belonging. And so as a culture, we've prioritized conformity, even though belonging doesn't necessarily mean conforming. Yeah. So I think, I think that's a really good question about, you know, cause she ultimately, you know, the, you and I aren't falling, we're not getting to talk about all the fun teeny bopper stuff in here. And I don't necessarily need to, but you know, she has this really sweet relationship with Wells, this boy whose dad is jackass right I mean literally um and 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 Wells himself has a really hard time with his dad and yet Wells is really supportive of her and he when she you know she sort of comes out to him as Muslim and she's really nervous about it and he's really accepting of that and he's like okay and he's like well are we allowed to still hold hands or am I allowed to kiss you you know like he's sort of asking for consent he's trying to learn the boundaries he's like he asked her a ton of questions he says like tell me what it means to be Circassian and she's like am I talking he keeps saying am I talking too much he's like no no I'm really curious you know he shows up as this like curious participant and he's a really popular cool kid and so is she right and again that's an example of creating belonging by like listening and being curious and and not about conformity at all. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of the teachers I work with in middle schools are doing identity units where they're really like helping kids learn the language of difference. You know, I had a teacher I work with in who works with fourth and fifth graders and kids didn't know these um, Vermonters in small, rural, mostly white, small town didn't know words like biracial. Right. And so learning the vocabulary of difference, learning the vocabulary of um, different um, ethnicities and races and gender identities and sexual orientations, I think allows, allows, makes space for all the ways of being in a way that's not like, shh, we don't talk about that. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I just have more wondering about what would it look like for us the way we do in literature we talk about different perspectives and points of view what would it look like for us to embrace plurality the way the study group in this book does yeah yeah and that 
right? I mean, I think the, I think I'm just thinking over and over again right now, you know, being American is not a monolith, you know, to sort of come back to this, right? And exactly like you're saying, and being a woman is not a monolith, you know, that that there's all these um, ways that all of us don't want to be put in our monoliths. (laughs) So you're right. Yes. So that, like, coming back to Wells, because he, in his way, is also struggling with, I am not my parents. Right. right? Which I think all kids are in some way. I watched my own kid still struggle with that. But, like, uh, there are some things, some values, some ways of being that my parents um, and I have in common. And there are others that we do not. And um, so Wells is his dad is really more than just different than him though. His dad is really um, uh, rigid and um, domineering and doesn't really make space for the ways Wells wants to be different. Has this very narrow notion of what Wells should be like. Uh, Wells's mother on the other hand, you know, is gonna love her son no matter what. And so there's also, I, I thought about so many teachers teaching about the election or teaching about January 6th, the um, attempted coup on the Capitol, the insurrection. Um, and they're holding this space where they're teaching about this thing in ways that may be different than what kids are hearing from at home. And how do we make sca- space for kids to navigate you know, they're coming to terms with their own understandings of the world and where they stand on important issues where they might think differently than their parents. Middle schools where that's starting to emerge, but by high school, I'm sure you see kids showing up in ways that are similar to their, their, the people in their home and different. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I, I I just agree with you. I don't have anything brilliant to say back to you, Jeannie, but I think, yeah, you're right. <laughs> I do think I was just looking at the that end scene when you mentioned his mom, because his mom, Serena, you're right, you know, Wells really loves music and playing music. And for him, that's always this bargaining chip with his dad or, or something that gets in the way of sort of with his dad, because his dad he's worried his dad isn't going to pay for things or allow him to keep pursuing his music if he doesn't, you know, fall in line or whatever. But his mom is different. And at the very end of the book, you learn that, um, you know, that that Serena is the one who donated to the Muslim student fund that Dua and Ali were, you know, she don't, I think she donated like $10,000. Like she sort of secretly, and, and Ali learns this at the end and they're, um, and they're, and they're talking about both of their, parents and Wells says people can surprise you even parents you know like they're trying to figure it out and and Allie says I've been thinking about it a lot you know um and and that's when she's and then she's trying to figure out for her dad you know her dad her dad who has no interest in religion when his mom dies in the hospital pray Allie says will you pray with me it'll make me cry it's such a sweet scene it's like I totally teared up when I read that part you know and her dad says okay I'll pray with you you know and there's this I think this book too, it, again, it, it does a nice job of, yeah, there, uh, that is, you know, most, pe- many people think they're not religious and then something like death happens and they feel really, really shocked to their core. And then they fall back and rely on this like ancient old thing that they thought they had rejected, right? And so her dad, so she's trying to figure out, well, maybe my dad will be, you know, he prayed with me that one time and now he's, he fasted with me for Ramadan for a few of the days, maybe, Maybe now we'll have a, and, and you know, the, the final scene is this, um, this party for Eid, the, the end of Ramadan. They have a big um, Eid party at her house. Um, and, and Serena and Wells' mom comes over and Wells and they're both at this party and all of her Muslim study group friends. It's sort of a very, it's a very convenient, sweet ending. You know, it's a little bit YA novel ending where everybody comes together for a big party. But um but they are trying to figure out their parents and maybe are their parents going to change? And if they're not going to change, are they still going to like their parents? And yeah, anyway, lots of, yeah. Do you want to read from that section? I was trying to see if there was something. Um, I think there's a couple things. Yeah, I do want to read from that because there's some what, things. What page? So, I'm on page 412 and it goes on to 413. So 
Allie says, people say being Jewish isn't just about religion. A lot of people are culturally or ethnically Jewish, but not religious. Despite what people say, Islam might be like that too. No matter what culture or country you're from or how diligent your practice is, or even if you're somebody raised in the faith who walked away from it, there's still something greater connecting you. You're part of an ummah. People think it's solely religion, but our shared experiences are impossible to escape. They've invisibly shaped us. They're everywhere. Um, and this is her trying to understand her dad, right? She's like, he's shaped by Islam. He's part of the, the ummah, part of our community, even though he doesn't know it or he doesn't always wanna be, right? And then Wells, so sweet, you know, he says, you make me believe big things are possible, he says. I love that about you. And she's, and then right after this, she has this moment where she says, you know, she sort of realizes I'm in love with Wells, right? And she says, I think I'm in love. I know I'm in love with Wells. This is the top of page 413. And then she says, that's the thing about love. It's not certain. It requires a leap. It means stepping into the unknown and surrendering to something bigger than yourself against all obstacles, kind of like faith. Mm. Um, and I do, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a really sweet reflection on being part, be, belonging, kind of like we were talking, like this is her trying to figure out how to belong. And she nails it, man. She's doing a better job than most of us. That's why I love her. I'm like, oh, I could take some notes from Allie. <laughs> yeah, totally. I, you're just, I read this book a while ago and you're reminding me how much I loved her as a character and how much I um, loved all the ways this book shed light on other areas of life and mm -hmm. how we live it and how we show up in our life authentically. Yeah. And then I have to say, just for anyone listening at the end, <laughs> the very end of the book ends with her dad bringing out this platter of mansaf, which if you ever go to Jordan, you have to eat mansaf because it is, it's like the Jordanian delicacy. It's this rice platter with lamb and the lamb is like, I'm not even sure I'm going to quite remember, but it's, it's cooked in this like stewed yogurt and I can't even begin to describe how decadent and rich and unbelievable Mansaf is. And so at the end, when they ate Mansaf, I was like, oh my God, Mansaf. <laughs> well, I trust you, Jory, because you are one of the best cooks I know. <laughs> get yourself, get yourself to amend, Jeannie. Get some Mansaf. <laughs> so one last question for you. How would you use this book with students? If you were to use this book with students, what would you do? I would just want to talk about God. <laughs> I don't know if you're allowed to do that with students, but that's what I would want to do. Just in terms of, I'd want to, I'd want to, I mean, you know, Nadine Julie Courtney is funny to me because right before this, I went back to remind myself what else she'd written and if I'd read other things by her. And, you know, everything else she's written is like total pop, teeny bopper, chicky flicky, you know, like, dating books and that's not to it's lovely I think that's really fun but like she you know not a dig but they're she's good at the formula of like the meet cute the characters the tension people finding themselves and then finding each other like she's got that down pat but um so I think to read if you know I don't know that I would ever assign this book but I think if I had a couple kids reading it I would be really interested to ask them like are you religious at all how does that you know, where, where does that fit into your life? And how does that, um, is it important to you? Et cetera, et cetera, those kinds of things. I, I don't know, I, I am always, I don't know if you're, a, ooh, sorry, Jeannie. Sorry, <laughs> let me start that part over. I just got a phone call. I didn't realize it was connected to my, nope. Um, it might, is there a way I can turn that off? Cause it's gonna like beep again when the voicemail comes through. I have no idea. Me neither. It always happens to me when I'm on. Oh, you could put your phone on do not disturb. And then it won't go, ring. Go in. I think so. If you go into settings okay, and do, right. do not I'm just disturb. Gonna, yeah, I'm going to just put up the. Okay. I think it's on. Hopefully. Okay. Sorry if that happens again. Anyway, I was just saying I'm always, you know, I think it's obviously in public education, we, I would never talk about um, I would never want to like talk about religion in a way that made students uncomfortable or even made them feel like they needed religion. But I sometimes, I know for me, I feel the absence of 
just talking about that greater connectivity to each other or the sense of belonging that a community can feel. And it doesn't have to be like Jewish, Christian, Muslim, you know, Hindu. It doesn't have to be even organized religion, but that like, what do communities need to have to sustain themselves? Because I do think, I think there's a lot of that in school that we, that connectivity piece, which to me, honestly, as an educator is kind of the work, like God work. And I would never want to frame it that way because we don't talk about things in a school that way. But I have to admit, I'm often tempted to go to rabbinical school to become a better teacher. Like, I think for me, if I could go and spend five years deeply looking at how do you build soulful community, that I would be a much better educator because I would be acknowledging that, like the connective tissue that exists in a classroom and not because I want people to be Jewish. I don't care about Jewishness for them (laughs) or is, you know, but anyway, so I think this book offers an interesting way to kind of just let people even think about like, do you believe in something bigger than yourself? You know, she talks about that a bunch in here. She sort of has this idea that she's part of something a lot bigger and it feels really good to be connected to that. And I, yeah, that's what I'm most interested in here. (laughs) That's, I love that, Jory. And it makes me want to ask kids the question, what makes you feel connected? And I think about myself, I don't practice any organized religion. In fact, if I think about the soul work I do, it's probably most associated with paganism or something. It's about being in the land, being um, out of doors, being connected with nature. And that's super important to me, but like thinking about the discrete practices that make me feel connected and they're not that different. They're poetry and, um, and reflection and um, presence, being present. Yeah. Um, Jeannie, I know you well enough to know you do all kinds of soulful stuff. (laughs) You're always like lighting candles out by the lake and I don't know, calling in the spirits, man. I know you. (laughs) Don't tell my secrets, Jory. Oh my goodness. Okay. Um, So given this book about um, sort of soulfulness and finding yourself, exploring, maybe not even finding, but looking for yourself and how to show up and be in the world, do you have any other YA or middle grades or adult books you would recommend to readers interested in that kind of novel or book or text? The one that popped up for me is Braiding Sweetgrass, which I think some of those essays could be perfect with um, young adult and middle grades readers by Robin Wall Kimmerer. I love, yeah, I think that's a really, I think that's a great idea. I think too, we were mentioning it at the beginning, but um, Darius the Great is Not Okay is, um, and it just happens to be another character from the Middle East, although from a very different, you know, he's he's Iranian American, but also has one parent who is from Iran and one, his father is a white man, lives in the US. And that book is all about him, you know, he and his family go back to Iran to visit his grandparents in Yazd and they, and he re, he rediscovers that part of his soul, that missing piece of himself in being in Iran and feeling like, oh, I'm fitting this puzzle together because I'm honoring all the parts of myself. So I think about that book. Um, he calls himself fractional Persian. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, exactly. Good memory. Um, I think about, oh gosh, there's so many. Um, I mean, we were talking about this before, but I was just saying, you know, Juliet Takes a Breath by Gabby Rivera, which I know you've also read, which is a really, you know, it's a book about this badass, biracial, queer character who's taken on the world by going out to the West Coast to have this internship. And it's, you know, similar to this book, it, it's this story that's full of philosophy and theory and like background knowledge. Like I felt like I got an education on like queer and feminist and sort of radical theory by reading that book. Um, and also it's about a character trying to find all of their missing pieces and, and, and not all of them. I mean, we're never like, I am never going to find all my missing pieces and most characters won't either. But even when you, even when you can relocate one piece, you know, like you just become that much more grounded. Like the thread to the earth connects you that much more deeply when you find that one piece to put in. So I think that's another book about finding, 
finding a piece and fitting it in. And, and as you're saying it now, I'm thinking of like 700, but you mentioned the poet X genie before when we were talking about oh. Acevedo. That's another oh. book about, you know, for a twin, you know, a twin finding who, who, you know, goes to this Catholic school, right? Doesn't she go to a Catholic, uh, Catholic or her mom? No, I think her mom is very Catholic, right? That's the, yeah. the Catholic connection. Um, and she's trying to find her place in Catholicism which she has some connection to, but it also is like not, it often makes her feel ashamed and bad. And so she's trying to navigate all those things. And um, Elizabeth Acevedo's book, Acevedo's books often, and she wrote The Poet X, one of my favorite YA books of all time. You're mentioning all my bright spots, Jory, um, are all seem to be about reclaiming your full self. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Or yeah. And even if, or even just a piece more of yourself, like getting you a little closer to feeling settled in your bones. Um, cool. Yeah. Those um, are great suggestions. The other one I would add is Patrons, Patron Saints of Nothing. I love that book so much, Jeannie. I couldn't believe it. That book is so good, right? Because he's um, Filipino-American and he goes back to the Philippines. And there's something about this. Um, it's beyond religion, but ethnicity or a part of the identity that feels really important too. And I think what you're, yeah, it's interesting, this list, I hadn't thought about these books in quite this way, but like, you know, being an American, and I I don't know if Allie would agree with me in this book, but for me, like, being an American, there, we don't realize it's exhausting until you think about what you might have lost in the process of like becoming American. And for those of us, like I would certainly be one who's like past, you know, I've become white, right? Like my roots have become white. They didn't maybe weren't originally Jewish people were not white, but now they are. And so that like all the things that you've lost. And I think that my senses is like for people of color, this is even greater um, uh, for, for so many more reasons for violence and injustice on way larger scales. But like, this, the amount of loss that exists in our culture is so massive and so grief-filled for so many people, for so many reasons. I mean, certainly Robin Wall Kilmer and Braiding Sweetgrass. I mean, just the, for indigenous people, perhaps for more than anybody else, you know, that, that anyway, there's this, this piece of Americanness, which is so pockmarked and grief-filled and when all these teen books, you're right, there's this collection of books about people sort of reclaiming an earlier identity as and bringing it into the mix of themselves. And that is what allows them to feel more whole. That's sort of an amazing, it's a really, would be a really interesting set of, that would be a really interesting list to curate. <laughs> well, and what I'm thinking about is you've posed these questions that for me could make great essential questions. And they are, what makes you feel connected? And then this other one of what does it mean to be American? And perhaps the enduring understanding that goes with that is being American is not a monolith. Yeah. 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 Oh, Jory, I'm so grateful for this conversation. <laughs> Thanks, Jeannie. It's a nice Sunday morning with you and my tea. And your tea. Thank you for joining me. Um, Can we just note again that um, I really do hope if we've mispronounced anything or if anyone listening felt like we did any we we misrepresented something or said yeah I hope that somebody will let us know because I would love to make sure that we're not in in our excitement about Allie and our love of her and this book I don't want anyone to feel like we missed a big cultural piece so yes if we've harmed anyone please be in touch we want to know so we can get better so we can do better thank you Jory yeah thanks Jeannie have a nice day you too. I'm Jeannie Phillips, and this has been an episode of Vermont Ed Reads, talking about what Vermont's educators and students are reading. Thank you to Jory Hurst for appearing on the show and talking with me about All American Muslim Girl. If you're looking for a copy of All American Muslim Girl, check with your local library. That's where I got mine. Special thanks to our tireless producer and audio engineer, Audrey Homan, to find out more about Vermont Ed Reads, including past episodes, upcoming guests and reads, and a whole lot more. You can visit vtedreads.tarrantinstitute.org 
Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at BTEDReads. This podcast is a project of the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont.